to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In the midst of a world that's always changing, there is one thing that is absolutely unchangeable, and that's the Word of God. If you're in the medical field, you're continually going to seminars to keep up with the changes in medicine. If you're a teacher, about the time you get comfortable with your subject, they come out with a new textbook. If you have a set of encyclopedias that are 20 years old, they're obsolete. If you have a world atlas that's 20 years old, it's obsolete. If you're going on a trip this summer and you've got a map that's two years old, it's suspect. You know, that's the beauty of being a Bible teacher. My subject never changes. It's always current. It's always up to date. It speaks to the issues of every age. The message that Paul proclaimed in the city of Thessalonica 2,000 years ago is still the message that we proclaim today. And in our passage this morning, chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, Paul makes some profound statements about the gospel that he preached. And I want us to note five things that he says about it. Number one, the gospel is communicated by ordinary people. Verse 13, And for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Now notice that phrase. You received from us the word of God's message. God's message came to the people of Thessalonica through Paul and Silas and Timothy three ordinary-looking guys in ordinary robes with ordinary sandals and ordinary voices. Sometimes we get the idea that Paul was bigger than life. When he walked down the street, he was like everyone else, except that he was communicating the message of God. I think it's a safe assumption this morning to assume that you receive the message of the gospel through another human being. I would be very surprised if God spoke out of heaven to you. I would be very surprised if God sent an angel down to communicate the gospel to you. In fact, the gospels only record three occasions when God spoke directly out of heaven. One was when Jesus was baptized. Another was when he was transformed on the mountaintop. And the third was at his triumphal entry in John 12, 28. All the rest of the time, he communicated through human beings. And that is God's marketing strategy. Now, why does he do that? Well, I think because that's the way people can best receive it. When God came down on the mountain in Exodus chapter 20, it says the people stood at a distance and they trembled. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but don't let God talk to us lest we die. You know, it's pretty intimidating when God talks out of heaven. People have a problem with that. When Jesus was on the mountaintop and he was transfigured, we're told that God spoke out of a cloud. And his nearest disciples, we're told, fell on their faces and were much afraid. And so God has chosen to communicate through people. In fact, his greatest revelation of all was clothed in humanity. John chapter 1 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. 
The writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews chapter 1. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. The gospel is encompassed in a person, Jesus Christ. And it is communicated through ordinary people. You know, Paul never quite got over that concept. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, he said, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. How could God entrust the unfathomable spiritual riches of Christ to an ordinary fallen human being? How could the least of all saints be called to preach the most of all messages? God didn't broadcast the gospel from heaven like thunder. He didn't write it across the sky. He didn't have it sung by angelic choirs. God entrusted the gospel to ordinary human beings who had been extraordinarily changed by its power. And you know, sometimes that's the reason people miss it, because God is communicating through ordinary people. Columnist Dave Barry listed the 50 things he has learned in 50 years. Number 19 was this. If there really is a God who created the entire universe with all its glories, and he decides to deliver a message to humanity, he will not use as his messenger a person on cable TV with a bad hairstyle. Now, he may have a good point. But the God who created this universe in all his glories has chosen to communicate through ordinary human beings. And some of us have bad hairdos. When Paul and Silas and Timothy walked into Thessalonica, they were just three ordinary guys with an extraordinary message, the message of God. And so the first thing we can say here is that the gospel is communicated by ordinary people. And then secondly, the gospel is absolutely accurate. Look at verse 13. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. When these people in the city of Thessalonica heard Paul's message, they received it not as the message of man, but as the message of God. And as you sit here this morning, what you believe you are hearing will have an effect on what you believe you ought to do. If you believe that I'm just a guy standing up here with some interesting ideas, that's not going to go very far. But if you believe that what I hold in my hand is the Word of God, that has an impact. But I want you to notice something. Regardless of what you believe, this is God's Word. Paul says you received it for what it really is, the Word of God. Billy Graham used to say, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. It would be more accurate to say, God said it, and that settles it, whether you believe it or not. Because it is the Word of God. And one of the things that sets it apart from man's Word is it is absolutely accurate. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, God gives his test for one of his prophets. You know what it is? Everything he has to say has to be 100% accurate. And if he is inaccurate in one point, he is a false prophet. Now, only God can make that claim. 
I'm always interested at the beginning of the year when the tabloids come out with their prognostications for the year. You know what some of them were for 1998? Astrologer Athena Starwoman forecasts that Frank Sinatra's cards show him to still have plenty of zing left in his zodiac. He apparently didn't get the message. Another psychic said that rats carrying bubonic plague would overrun Los Angeles, sparking mass evacuations. Another said that rising insurance costs would force the NFL to eliminate tackle football in favor of two-handed touch. One said that in 1998, Fidel Castro would move to Beverly Hills and that Michael Jackson would leave his musical career and become a TV evangelist. You know, even the top psychics like the late Gene Dixon only had a batting average about 333, and that's only because they made a lot of general predictions, like the stock market will go up or the stock market will go down. Gene Emery, who's been critiquing the world's top prognosticator since 1979, said, the best psychics have as much clairvoyance as Forrest Gump on a bad day. We know God made over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the first coming of Jesus Christ alone. He told exactly what family he would be born into, the family of David. He told exactly where he would be born in the town of Bethlehem. He told that he would be born of a virgin, that he would die on a tree, that his hands and his feet would be pierced. He even told us the words that Jesus would say on the cross and told us that the soldiers would cast lots for his clothing. And God is batting a thousand because the Word of God is just that, the Word of God. It is absolutely accurate. I like what Billy Sunday said. He said, I am a Christian because God says so. And I stand on God's Word, and if the book goes down, I'll go with it. There is no place else to stand in the shifting sand of this world than the Word of God. It's absolutely accurate. Third thing Paul says about the gospel is that it produces change. Notice the end of verse 13, which also performs its work in you who believe. Now notice, Paul doesn't say, you are working hard to obey the gospel. No. He says, the gospel is performing its work in you. And what do you have to do? Simply believe. Now there are two important words in this verse. In some translations, they're both translated by the word receive. He says, you have received from us the word. That word means you simply heard it, you listened to it. But the second word, receive, that's probably better translated accepted, is that you opened up and took the word in. You not only heard it, you accepted it into yourself. That is, you believed the gospel. You know, the thing that distinguishes man-made religion from God's religion is real simple. If you look at man's religion, it's always man working. It is man trying to work his way to God. It is man trying to climb the stairway to heaven. God's way is just the opposite. God came to us. He came into this world and he did all the work. In fact, on the cross, Jesus said what? It is finished because the work was done. And all that we have to do is accept it and believe it. And when we do, not only does he save us, but he also 
begins to work in us to change us. In Philippians 2.13, Paul says, God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I was telling someone this week about the time when I was 20 years old and I was living out in Denver, Colorado, and I was trying to look like and act like and be a hippie. And God began to speak to my heart. And I knew that I needed to surrender myself to him. And I remember the one thing that was holding me back was that I was afraid if I really gave my heart to him that he would make me a preacher. And 25 years later, I'm a preacher. But you know what? I wouldn't trade what I'm doing for anything else. You couldn't say, well, I'll let you be a, a neurosurgeon or I'll let you be an astronaut or I'll let you be a professional ball player. Forget it. I want to be a preacher. Now, how did I get here? Did I work hard to change my attitudes about everything? No. What I did was I opened my heart to receive him. And he came inside and he changed me from the inside out. He came in and he changed the price tags on things so that the things I thought were so exciting back then were now garage sale items. And he gave me new desires and new wants and has fulfilled my life with himself. See, that's the power of God. He comes in in the gospel and he changes us. That's why Paul calls it in Romans 1.16, the power of God. You see, the, the word of God is not static and obsolete. It is dynamic and life-changing. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces into us, even into our thoughts and our intentions. The word of God just fillets us open so that God can come in and work his change from the inside out. That was true in the city of Thessalonica. At the end of chapter 1, we find out that everybody throughout the Roman Empire had heard about the fact that they had been transformed from worshipers of idols to servants of God. Most of you are familiar with the story of the mutiny on the bounty. In the 19th century, crew members of the HMS bounty took over the ship, set their captain adrift in a lifeboat, and they ended up landing on Pitcairn Island in the South Pacific. But that's not the end of the story. These rough, tough, godless sailors spent their days on that island drinking, gambling, carousing, and fighting with one another. In fact, their fighting soon developed into battles, and one by one they began to kill off each other until there were only a handful left. And one of those that was left was a fellow by the name of Alexander Smith. He was rummaging through his trunk one day, and he found a Bible that his mother had put there. And he got it out and he opened it and he began to read it. And he came to understand the gospel. And he put his faith in Jesus Christ and it changed his life. And so he began to read the Bible to the other few members that were left there. And they all as well came to faith in Jesus Christ and were changed. And some years later, when, when this island was discovered by outsiders, they found that the inhabitants had formed a model community. In fact, they didn't even have a jail because they had no crime. They had been changed by this book. And that's what the gospel does because it's the word of God. And then the fourth thing Paul points out is that the gospel arouses opposition. Verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus 
that are in Judea. Now, stop right there. This is really the, one of the reasons why God communicates the gospel through human beings, because they give you a living example. In chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, You imitated the Lord, you imitated Paul and Silas and Timothy, and now he says you are imitating the churches in Judea. And what is it that they were imitating? Look at verse 14 again. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. You see, the true test of your faith is seen when the opposition shows up. And when opposition showed up in Thessalonica, these young believers endured, which is the test that they had genuine faith. When Jesus gave the parable of the sower, he said some of the seed fell on rocky soil. And then he described it this way. He said, those are the ones who hear the word and immediately receive it with joy. But, he said, when the affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. You see, you can leave church today and say, I'm a new man. But that doesn't mean a thing until your profession meets some tribulation. I like to go out to the basketball goal next door and play basketball. And when I'm out there by myself, I'm pretty good. I make most of my shots. And even when I miss, I get all the rebounds. But you know, when somebody comes along and wants to play me one-on-one, -on -one, it's a little different story. You see, you don't determine how good you are when nobody's guarding you. You determine how good you are when somebody's in their face with their hands up. That's why they have football training camp. Some guys come to training camp and they've got great physical attributes. But the coach doesn't sign you on the team because you can run a 4-3-40. He wants to know if you'll run a 4-3-40 when there's a linebacker standing in front of you. You see, the real test is in the face of opposition. And the gospel always arouses opposition. Jesus said in John 15, 20, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy 3:12: All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, why does the gospel arouse opposition? Well, let me suggest some reasons. One reason would be because it eliminates pride. The reason the gospel is a good news is because God does something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And because he does all the work, who gets all the glory? He does. Now, what does that do to our pride? Well, it knocks it off its horse. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. When we get to heaven, we will not be bragging about how we got there. There will be only one thing that we will brag about in heaven, and that is our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Paul said it this way in Galatians 6:14. But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, a lot of people have a problem with getting their pride stepped on because they like to say, I don't need any help. I can do it myself. And so they're antagonistic against the gospel. 
The second reason they're antagonistic is that it confronts sin. The whole purpose of the gospel is to save us from our sins. And our, our faith is really tied inextricably with repentance. That is, we turn away from sin to the Lord. And some people get fighting mad when you try to take away their sin. Jesus in John 3.19 said, The light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. You see, they are not indifferent. If people love sin, they will hate the light. And if your life has been changed by the gospel, then you are going to be shining light on people around you, and they are going to direct that opposition toward you. Third reason is it forgives blatant sinners. You know, most men like to have a scoring system where they rate respectability. And, and the bar may change for different people, but we like to say, well, if you're above this line, you're good. If you're below this line, you're bad. But what does the gospel do? It throws out our scoring system because it puts us all on the same level. We are sinners before holy God. In fact, the gospel is actually designed so that it is more conducive to blatant sinners. Jesus said in Mark 2, 17, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And that really upset the Pharisees. And that's why they were always murmuring and saying, Jesus is a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. He eats with them and he drinks with them. And then a the fourth reason why it's antagonistic is because it's exclusive. You know, people like religions that are broad, they like to say, well, you know, everybody's going to get to the same place. Doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Well, guess what? The gospel is narrow. It's the narrow door and the narrow way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, people do not have a problem with Christianity as long as you keep it broad. You know, you, you, you have what I would call political Christianity. If you give an acceptance speech and you want to say, I want to thank God, or if you around the office say, well, God has really blessed me, or if you talk about the good Lord or the man upstairs, people aren't going to have a problem with that. What people have a problem with is when you say, Jesus is the only way. You see, that's narrow truth. And in this verse... Paul points out that the people who first brought the opposition were the Jews. Now, the Jews believed in God. They were very religious people. They went to church every Saturday. They read their Bibles. They prayed. They observed feast days. Why were they antagonistic against the gospel? Well, because they wanted a God without a Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. He says, Who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Who killed Jesus? You say, I thought the Romans did. Well, Paul's pretty clear here. He lays the responsibility in the lap of the Jews. Jesus really did the same thing in a parable in Mark chapter 12. He said a, a man had a vineyard, and he rented it out to some men who worked the vineyard. And when it came time for harvest, he sent his servants to get his share of the harvest. And they beat up some of his servants, and they killed others. And so finally he said, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him. And they killed the son, and they threw him out of the vineyard. 
And Jesus was referring to the leaders of Israel. They beat and ran and killed God's prophets. And then ultimately they killed his son. And Paul says at this point in time, they are even driving off the Lord's apostles. And so he says in verse 15, they are not pleasing to God. That's an understatement. And then he goes on to say, but are hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles. They, they were not satisfied to just reject the gospel for themselves. They went about to try to hinder other people from being saved. And Paul had experienced that in Thessalonica. He came there and preached. He was only there three Sabbath days and they drove him out of town. He went off to Berea and they followed him to Berea and drove him out of that town as well. Why were they so antagonistic? Because the gospel arouses opposition. And then the fifth thing he tells us here is that the gospel intensifies wrath. Look at the end of verse 16. With the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. The gospel is good news for those who believe, but it's also bad news for those who reject. In fact, for those who reject the gospel, they would be better off if they never heard. Because the Bible teaches that with greater light, there is greater responsibility. The more light you have, the greater judgment you will receive. Jesus put it this way in John 15, 22. He says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus essentially says, You would be better off if I had never come because you have rejected full light. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 24, listen to what he says to the city of Capernaum. He says, It shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. You say, well, Sodom, I thought that was that city where they did such bad sins that God sent fire out of heaven and consumed them. Obviously, Sodom did greater sins. But Jesus says, in the judgment, it's going to be worse for Capernaum. Why? Because that's the city where Jesus made his headquarters during his ministry. And that's the city that had so much light and yet rejected. And so the greater the light, the greater the judgment. Now, who faces the greatest judgment according to Paul in this passage? Well, he points to Israel because Jesus came to them, Jesus lived among them, Jesus did his miracles before them, Jesus preached to them, and not only did they reject him, but they killed him, they killed his messengers, and they hindered others from being saved. And so Paul says in verse 16, they filled up the measure of of their sins. Their cup was filled full of sins. And what were those sins? They were sins of rejecting the light of the gospel. And so he says at the end of verse 16, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. The wrath that we read in chapter 1 and verse 10 that the believers in Thessalonica had been delivered from was coming upon these Jewish rejectors. And Paul says it is coming to the utmost. Now, who would be the modern-day parallel to the first-century Jews? Well, it would have to be the United States. We have so much light, and yet if you have any sensitivity at all, you can sense the judgment of God 
hanging over us as a nation. God has spoken loud and clear. The gospel is communicated by ordinary people. It's absolutely accurate. It produces change in people's lives. It arouses opposition, and it intensifies wrath. The gospel is the greatest news you ever received, but it's the worst news you ever rejected.